I'm Emily. And you're listening to A Sprinkle of Sugar, A Dash of Murder, a true crime podcast with an element of baking. And what are you doing this week? Alrighty. So this week I'm going to be doing a coconut cream pie with a macaroon press in crust. Macaroon press in crust. So the thing is, I decided to do obviously another cream pie because it's Dr. Cream. I mean, Mm -hmm. you have to do cream pies. And then I decided to do coconut because he's a freaking cocoa nut. He's a nut. (laughs) (laughs) It matches. There you go. So it fits perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Goo for coconuts. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he's a little, he's a little bit of a whack job. So cocoa nut. I love it. We love a theme. Let's get back. This is part two, right? Yes. Alrighty. So where we left off, just tiny recap, you know. All these poisonings have been happening in London, England, but um, Inspector Jarvis has now gone to America to find out how he landed in prison in Illinois. So we're going to go back and discover that now. So um, Inspector Jarvis arrived in New York in late June, but there was no evidence that Cream ever practiced medicine there. So he realized he had to head north to Quebec, where he was from uh, in Canada. And he met with Daniel Cream, uh, Thomas's brother, to confirm their kind of like their background, you know. And like I said before, they're from a very wealthy family. And Thomas was the oldest of six children. His father was very active in the church and was very generous with his time and money. Um, And the cream children were all described as distinguished for exceptional integrity and uprightness, devoted members of the church, Sunday school, and every association of elevating character. So, and Thomas himself taught Sunday school as a teenager. Um, So, you you know, you'd think that kind of upbringing would rub off on him, but apparently, no, had the opposite effect of what his father always wanted for them. Um, Thomas was accepted into McGill University of Medicine in Montreal at 22 years old in 1872. So that's where he originally started his education. So at the school, Cream and his classmates kind of listened and watched rather than actually did anything hands-on. And they had little supervision when they're doing like dissections and they shadowed doctors, but were never allowed to like physically practice. So Also, at the time, surgery was a last resort, so they saw as few as three major operations a month, so just not a ton. Um, Another professor at the school taught them the use of chloroform and how it was could be an anesthetic, but also was lethal. And Um, excuse me, chloroform? Yeah. In the classroom. That literally just like. Yeah, okay, it knocks people out. Mm-hmm. But 
That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Another professor taught a course using herbs, chemicals, opium, narcotics, strychnine, and arsenic for prescriptions. Hmm. Which is that drug from part one, you know? Something sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, so school, you know, not a great education, even though it was known as a really good school by our standards today, you know, um, he graduated in 1876 in that same year in Waterloo, Canada, he met Flora Eliza Brooks. She was 23 and he was 26 and they got engaged pretty quickly, even though she really didn't know much about him. Um, such as cream told his landlady Jane Porter, he was moving out, but asked if he could keep some of his belongings there for a while. And she agreed, even though he's like, oh, I have to leave behind this human skeleton, by the way. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I guess yeah. it's not that weird. It's exactly. Like, she was like, oh, he's a doctor. Yeah. I guess I might be like, well, that's an interesting thing to have, but whatever. Doctors. Like, exactly. Like she's, she was probably you know she's like oh it's for his classroom whatever but two days later a fire broke out in his room and cream had placed the skeleton in his bed and when firemen found it they assumed he had died in the fire and jane was like no that's that's a medical skeleton he left a few days ago Uh, (laughs) so Uh, that's so strange like was he trying to fake his death that's what the police believe they're like okay so this was insurance fraud obviously or he was trying to fake his death or something and cream filed for loss of possessions for 978 dollars but the insurance company refused to pay it um because everyone suspected he did it on purpose and the dispute kind of fell apart and cream settled for only 350 dollars as a settlement um and then cream promised flora that they would marry and they you know had sex consummated their relationship because he promised he was going to marry her but then on september 9th she got very very ill very seriously um and they realized she had orphan by either drugs or instruments and Everyone knew Cream was the father and the abortionist. So. that That's horrible. It's so messed up. Like, I mean, that is, that had to have been illegal at that time, too. Like, you can't just, that's, oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it, it was probably illegal in general at that time. It was. Yep. Plus it being your own child. That's just sick. That's actually, like, yeah. makes me nauseous. It's really disgusting. Because who know and who knows like how she felt about all of it and how she was, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe she, like, like he would probably was the one that pushed her into it. Yeah, I would assume so. So yeah, like you said, it was um, against the law to perform an abortion, and Flora's father could have pressed charges. But instead, he insisted that Cream marry his daughter because he wanted he didn't really want anyone to know that she had been pregnant because like 
if he pressed charges, everyone would know, you know, scandalous time. Um, Isn't that so sad? Like, he'd rather have him marry his daughter than be, like, it could be a horrible marriage. He's literally a murderer. Yeah. Or um, rather than just, like, having some kind of shame on the family. Yeah. It's terrible. Can't it's really, really care sad. what people think. It's really sad. Mm-hmm. It's like, shouldn't you prioritize your daughter over, like, family shame? Everything else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everything else. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Makes me really sad for her. Yeah. So, on September 11th, a marriage contract was made up for Flora, and her father set all the terms. He said Cream was going to have, she was an heiress, by the way. And Kareem was going to have no claim to his wife's property or money. And he, she would inherit everything from her father and her husband, Kareem, could not touch any of it. And if he ever filed for divorce from her, he would have to pay her $10,000, which was like $200,000 at the time. Um, so at least he did that for her. But honestly, I yeah. feel like that's just like his own preservation, like for his own fortune. Yeah. And plus, then, like, there's no escape for her. Like, he's really just tying her in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel for him, like, he's trying to do the good thing for his daughter, but also, like, still, like, you got to get married. So, like, mm, you know, double-edged sword. So they married in their home very quietly, and Flora was lying down in a chair because she was too weak to stand during the ceremony because she was still very ill. Um, and the very next day, Cream said he was going to go to England to finish his med- medical education, and he never saw Flora again. Never comes back. So. Did she live? Um, yes, for a while. I'm going to circle oh. back to her later. Okay. But, I see, I see. Yeah. So, Cream went to London for the first time in October uh, 1876 and registered as a student at St. Thomas's. And he focused on obstetrics and claimed that he had been with like 500 pregnant women in his, and like helped them in his two years of schooling there. It's a little sus to me, though. Uh, a little sus and also like I mean I have no issues with male OBs whatsoever Mm -hmm. but just him specifically it really really grosses me out yeah like and the fact that like okay abstract like he's talking about like dealing with pregnant women and bringing life into the world yet he kills so many people is really messed up too yeah it really is it's like why why would you pick this when you don't you're not willing to have your own child like okay right yeah that too gross yeah so thomas had four fellow students from mcgill school in london uh which he did not like so mcgill was the school he went to in montreal and he came to london to kind of leave his little sketchy past and his little marriage behind but these four students there knew all about that because they were from the same town um 
And he had started courting another wealthy young lady. Um, but his fellow classmates like tipped her off that he was married in Canada and she like left him. So that he was not very happy about either. Um, so on July 25th, a notary was summoned to Flora Brooks house to write her last will and Testament. Um, she had recovered from her abortion, but then she was very seriously ill out of nowhere. And she was like nearly insane. And she admitted that she had been taking pills that cream had been sending her because she thought he knew what he was doing. Um, and the doctor ordered her to stop taking them, but her health remained very fragile. And she directed that her entire estate was going to go to her father. And 18 days later, she died at 24 years old. Oh and my gosh, that doesn't just happen. <laughs> yeah, no. Someone who should have been perfectly healthy before all of just a year earlier, you know. And when Cream heard that she had died, he sent a letter to her father demanding a thousand dollars, even though the marriage contract and all of that legality said he absolutely had no right to anything. Um, but her father sent him two hundred dollars just to like shut him up and to stop sending letters, and he did. So he ended up getting something anyway, even though it wasn't you know thousands of dollars or anything. Yeah, luckily not much. But also, so she specifically had them come out and, like, do her will. Do you think that was led by her father? Because, I mean, she left everything to her father. Like, she didn't Um, want anything going to him, even though she's taking pills from Cream. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, she trusted Cream enough to take medication from him, but not to leave him anything in her will. Yeah. I think, like, after since she got so sick, I think like after she had taken the pills for so long, she started, maybe she started to suspect him, but I don't know. Um, Flora's father also, after she died, claimed she had died of bronchitis um, so that no one would know what had happened. So there couldn't be no official inquest into her death if, if she had been murdered or not, because he told everyone it was bronchitis. So... So how did this story come to light? Like, how did this investigation go so in-depth where they were able to see, like, the truth of this? Um, Because when this investigator came to Canada, like, looking into his past, they finally, like, like, they found letters, they found her death certificate, and, like, all of that came up through the investigation. So that's how. So in London, Ontario... So not London, England now, London, Ontario, 1879. Um, Cream goes there next and opened a practice in the city. Um, And a young woman named Jessie one day opens a door to a privy, just like a bathroom, if you don't know. And a woman in her 20s was slumped against the wall. And she ran to get her brother, who called a constable, And the woman was dead. And next to her body was a medicine bottle. And the doctor detected the smell of chloroform. Um, What? Yeah. And then on top of that. 
Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm very curious. Keep on going. Okay. <laughs> her nose and cheeks were like blotched and really raw. Like she was burned from chloroform, like being pressed against her face, which I have to imagine is very painful. Cause you know, you see like chloroform, like, oh, press it against your nose, they pass out. But like when it's on you for a really long time and forcibly applied, you like burn from it. So that's not great. Um, that had to have been on her for a while, I would guess. Yeah. You know, I like, so, but the thing is, it probably didn't burn because she was probably <laughs> passed out by that point. Yeah. Um, most likely. Oh, so another doctor showed up to the crime scene, and this doctor identified the woman as Kitty Gardner, That, and he said he had treated her a few times and said his name was Dr. Cream. So here he is showing up at the crime scene, identifying her and his connection to her. Like, what goes through your brain? No one would ever think of you or suspect you if you didn't show up and announce these things. He's literally, I mean, like, people do that. Like, that makes more sense to me through all this. Like, him wanting to, like, follow the investigation and being, like, like, you know, those people that after they kill someone will show up at the crime scene, like, within, like, the crowd of people will be there because they're, like, a, they're, like, a watcher. They like to see everyone frantic about it and see everyone's reaction. That makes that makes more sense to me in like the psyche of like a murderer than Mm -hmm. um than like when when before he just would like give them the medications kill them and leave and not not be seen again or interact with them again yeah so that's really but that's still messed up i mean no matter what and to just be able to say oh yeah yeah i was her doctor i'm i'm affiliated with her Mm -hmm. yeah it's just crazy to me um so six months after his arrival in the city he was charged with practicing without a license in ontario so he claimed it was all a mistake he had submitted a fee for a license and ontario ontario medical council just didn't give him one um so it was kind of just ignored um well actually no it wasn't i don't know why i said that Um, So that allegation of illegal practice happened just before Catherine Gardner, or Kitty, was found dead in the privy just outside his office. Mm -hmm. And it was ruled a suicide, but Coroner Flack ordered an inquest into her death anyway, because he kind of suspected it was not a suicide. Um, So... That's crazy for them to call it a suicide. She literally had burns on her face. Yeah. It makes no sense. Like, what would she have done? Hold it to her face, like, super tight? She would have passed out before it could have burned her, I'd imagine. I mean, I guess I don't know chloroform that, like, well, but people don't use, I don't think it, I think it takes a little contact on the skin for a, a period of time for it to burn like that. And exactly. they would have found it like in her hand, and like they could have tell, told, like, seen it by the placement of her body. Yeah, exactly. Which is exactly what the doctor said. They were like, she could not possibly have been holding it that forcibly against her face for that long of time. 
Um, it's just not possible. And there were also two letters found in her pocket. Um, both of them were from Cream about like meeting her and like setting up treatments and stuff. So brought it right back to him, even though he had tried to cover his tracks and be like, yeah, I was treating her, blah, blah, blah. It was still suspicious. Um, super suspicious. Like, I wonder why she'd just be carrying around those letters. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't even really think of that. Um, Kitty had been working at a hotel and she had been feeling a bit ill. So she had left her job. And in her autopsy, they found out she was two months pregnant at the time. And Sarah Long, a maid at the hotel, said the baby's father was a man named Johnson. And Catherine had gone to cream for an abortion, but he claimed he had refused to do the operation. So instead, he told her, why don't you sleep with this guy, William Burl, and accuse him of being the father and being your doctor, I'll confirm the paternity test that he is the father. And then you'll like get money out of it and be fine. What? Great why? story. Yeah. But why? Like, why does he concoct this whole plan? Like, okay, you know what? I'll help you out. Yeah. Like he like plays her like a puppet, basically. It's super weird. Yeah. And um, he said, I even have a letter from Catherine explaining all this to me that she was going to do this plan. And so Sarah, her friend looked at it and was like, yeah, no, this is, this is not her handwriting. This is false. So um, the jurors came to the verdict that she had been murdered by persons unknown and no further action was taken and her murder was never solved. It's so dumb. Her yeah. be like, yeah, um, I have this letter and then like, it's literally not even her writing and then be like, well, that's all I got for you. Sorry. Bye. Literally, the, your suspect is in plain view right in front of you. And they're like, no, we don't know who it was, but that's all. Bye-bye. So at the same time, he's facing that charge of practicing without a license. And he did plead guilty to that one. And he had to pay a $27 fine. Um, but his reputation was kind of ruined there. So he left Canada. So flashback to... London, 1892. Um, Or that we flash forward. Flash forward, yes. Okay. (laughs) London. Um, Inspector Tunbridge went to a drugstore on Parliament Street, and the clerks there confirmed Cream had been there, and they had the order forms for Strychnine, and it was dated only days before Ellen Donmert's death. So... So he had bought a large number of pills, um, poisons, and empty capsules for the put to put them in. And the order was picked up a few days after Ellen's death, which explained why she had been the only one to be poisoned through a drink because he didn't have the pills yet. Um, so it kind of puts a timeline of all of this. And the inspector Tunbridge also realized that the blackmail letters had information about Matilda Clover's death before it was even out that she had been murdered. So he examined all of the letters and 
found that they were all written by cream. All of the handwriting matched in all of these letters. So. I just can't believe it took that long to, to figure out. Yeah. Like, I just feel like, and he's just kind of stupid. Cause I feel like that's just kind of common sense. Yeah. You, you'd think. I mean, I'm not a professional, but you'd think. Um. So an inquest into Matilda's death resumed and Lucy, the maid who had found her, described what happened and the investigators were interested this time in how she was misdiagnosed as alcohol poisoning because that was Matilda, if you remember from the first one. Everyone thought she, because she was an alcoholic, so they were like, that's what happened. Withdrawal. Ha ha. Um, They were like, okay, so we couldn't do a murder investigation because it was ruled as alcoholic poisoning. So why did this happen? So finally, people, you know, are starting to care and take the right steps. Mm -hmm. Um, But it slowed things down when Lucy and Emma Phillips both claimed they had never seen cream before, um, which they definitely had. So they just probably were remembering wrong or something. Um because you know it's definitely strange but yeah that's like a that's like a strange oh that's weird yeah but elizabeth masters and elizabeth may who were witnesses to him walking with matilda um they did pick cream up out of a lineup and they said yeah that's him that's the guy and um tonbridge also took samples of laura who was Cream's ex-fiance at this point, um, her writing. And Laura admitted that she had written the blackmail letters at Cream's request. So he had asked her oh. to do it. Um, and she was finally admitting that. Um, and Laura, okay. fa- yeah, Laura testified against Cream and told the jurors that she had forged the letters because he had asked her to. And when she had asked, like, what's going on? What's happening? And he was like, I'm just trying to keep you safe. I'll tell you all this later. And she kind of was like, okay. Which, I mean, maybe don't do things that sound a little bit illegal, but okay. Right. I mean, can you just be like, oh, no, you're going to tell me now. Yeah. Like, if you're involving me in this, tell me now. Exactly. I'm not going to be an accomplice to anything without knowing anything. I mean, I wouldn't be an accomplice anyway, but (laughs) yeah. Right. Definitely without knowing, though. Uh, yeah, like you, like I mean, come on, that's just common sense. Like it's like signing a contract without reading the words. Exactly. Um, so blackmail seemed to be certain he was going to be charged with that, but murder charge was still a weak case. So until a Miss Louisa Harvey was reading a newspaper about Matilda Clover's death and was like oh my God, this sounds really, really familiar. And that's when she realized everyone thought she was dead. Uh, Louisa Harvey, if you remember, is the girl who faked taking the pills in the first one. And Cream has thought she was dead this whole time. Um, She was like, well, guess what? I'm going to show up at the trial. And she did. She dressed in her Sunday best. And like in the court, like transcripts and stuff, Literally, her outfit was described because she just made sure she looked absolutely amazing when she, like, I mean, just burst imagine in that. Yeah, imagine that entrance. Like, everyone thinks you're dead and you just walk in. You have to dress Literally. up. Literally. 
Like yeah. you have to just, you have to make an entrance, like doors fooling open and there you are standing there. Bam. A random wind that's not even going through the courthouse. All yeah. Throws your hair back. and Exactly. That's kind of, that's exactly how I picture it in my head. And Cream was shook when he saw her because this whole time he thinks he killed her. This is like a ghost appearing before him right and now. And he's been saying she's dead. Mm-hmm. He's been so telling that's just people. Like, that's just like the cherry on top. Yeah. Um, and she was like, hello, here I am. And she testified against him and was like, yeah, you tried to kill me. LOL. I'm not dead. And he was very like visibly like pale. Like it really shook him. That's what I was going to say. I bet he was white as a ghost. Honestly, (laughs) I would almost like want to tip off like the jury or whoever's um, like the judge, everyone like, hey, we have a key witness. Keep your eyes on him. Look at his reaction. Also, the inspector testified he had found an envelope in Cream's room that had note dates and initials next to the murdered women. So like he was like, keeping track he wrote their initials and the date he murdered them like in on a letter because why and louisa harvey's name was on that list so whoopsie whoopsie daisies um got caught yup so the jury determined that matilda clover died of strychnine poisoning and that the poison was definitely administered by thomas neal cream so Got him. Got him. The verdict made sure that Cream would definitely stand trial for Matilda's murder, but Scotland Yard still wanted more because they were sure he had done other crimes. And they were continuing to look for evidence in the United States of what happened there. In Chicago, 1880, Elizabeth Green heard some footsteps above her apartment. And she smelled a sickening odor. So her husband climbed the fire escape and tried to get in the door, but it was locked. So he decided to go to the police. He was like, I'm not going to try and see what's in there anymore. And police broke down the door and found a woman with her arms folded on her chest on a blood-soaked bed. And her face and neck were very bloated and blackened with, like, decay and it's not a pretty sight and she was identified as mary ann matilda faulkner and she had moved in with a midwife hattie mack only 10 days earlier and hattie always had a doctor coming in and out of her apartment so when elizabeth who lived below them asked about it Uh, The doctor said, oh, I'm here for one of Hattie's children who's sick. And he gave Elizabeth a business card that had the name Thomas Neal Cream on it. So So, Cream was questioned because they had this business card. And he said that Marianne was a patient of his for dysentery. But then he backtracked and was like, oh, actually, she suffered from cervical lesions. So I was helping her with that. Two extremely different things. Yeah, those those are not even close to being accurate or uh, 
connected whatsoever. No. <laughs> um, so police picked up Hattie at her sister's house and Hattie accused Cream of performing an abortion. And Hattie had done her best to care for Marianne, but she had gotten very ill anyway. Cream claimed that Hattie had acted alone in the abortion and had botched it and that infection had set in. And that's what happened to her. And both Cream and Hattie were held at the station until the coroner could find out what actually happened between their two stories. Um, so Marianne was 29 when she died. She had been a maid and had sent part of her money to her mother in Canada to support her siblings. Um, and she had quit her job just six weeks before her death and said she was suddenly getting married. So Cream had set up a practice in Chicago's West Side. And landlords often refused to rent rooms to unmarried women at the time because they assumed, oh, you must be a prostitute. So we don't want to, like, give you a room. So single women, which is crazy, um, but single women were sent or they, like, went to the west side for a home because fewer questions were asked over there. That is absurd. Yeah, really absurd. Just that's horrible. It's just awful. Like a single woman must be a prostitute. That is so ridiculous. But I uh, mean, single women did not really like women in general. Just like did not really have it going for them at the time. No. Good thing all that suffrage and everything happened. So Cream saw an opportunity with all these like single ladies in his neighborhood now and decided he was going to call himself an expert in diseases of the womb, which was, you know, a way of saying, Hey, I'll perform an abortion if you have nowhere else to go for you. Wow. Yeah. So Hattie um, said cream. She knew that cream had performed at least 15 abortions for prostitutes in the area and she also claimed she had owed cream money so he had forced her to care for marianne and because she felt threatened she agreed to do it um he came a few times a day and then made the abortion during one visit and hattie fled after she realized Marianne was dead and cream told her, I'll take care of the body. And Cream's story though, was that he knew nothing of Marianne until one day Hattie called for his help saying Marianne had a miscarriage, but that Hattie eventually admitted she had attempted an abortion. So a lot of changing stories going on because originally he said he knew Marianne for treating her for dysentery. And now he's like, I had no idea who she was until she had a miscarriage one day. Right, exactly. So like that alone says that he's pretty guilty. Also, the fact that um, Hattie is telling a story in which she's also guilty of things. It's not like she's telling a story where she's completely innocent like right. she's admitting some guilt to it. I mean, mm-hmm. she she fled the scene. She was saying Covered that she was death. aware of like a lot of people having miscarriages in the area. Yeah, she she's not make, p- painting herself like herself to be very good in this. She's telling the truth, right? 
And then Cream is painting a perfect picture of how he's just an innocent doctor. Exactly. Um, Also, wait, time out. So I know that, like, he claimed to, like, be studying obstetrics and that he, you know, he had all these claims. And then he also had, um, like, questionable medical licenses here and there. Mm -hmm. And he had had training. Was he actually, I mean, it sounds like women died pretty often because of these mis- or I don't know how often. That's my question, I guess. Is do you know, like, if he actually performed very many successful abortions? I don't think he did. Because, again, like, he had the training and was taught it. But, again, they weren't allowed to, like, physically do it in school. So I don't think he really... Like, in theory, he studied it, but not in, like, practice, you know? Right. <clears throat> so, like, then- he had an actual license to, like, be a doctor in, um, in, like, a certain city, though. So that's why, like, he couldn't do it in Ontario because it was, like, a different license that he needed or something. So mm. he's, like, legit, but not at the same time. Okay. I don't think he was a very good doctor, even though he was like, he passed his tests and stuff, but he never actually like physically did any operations or anything. I mean, women are dying. Yeah. I don't know. It's just kind of, have you ever, you know, um, Dr. Death? Yes. What's, what's his actual name? Dr. Oh, I totally could not remember that. I'm blanking on that. He had all the education. But he would just completely, I mean, we need to talk about him at some point. Yeah. For those of you guys that haven't heard about him, it's really messed up. And this is actually current day things, but he really hurt his patients. And that was, yeah, that was psychotic. Um, But anyway, so I was just like, it kind of gives me a little bit of Dr. Bunch vibes when you're talking about like all of a sudden these women coming up after these medical um, procedures dead yeah or severely could, sick yeah that could be it too like he knew exactly what to do and he just didn't so right i'm not sure which one it was really i mean he already hated prostitutes clearly yeah. from our last our last episode so it makes me think like it could have just been intentional like just botching it completely oh so awful yeah um so the coroner asked him well don't you know that it is proper for an attending physician to furnish a death certificate after someone dies and cream was like oh i've only had to do one before and i just like didn't know how to do it i couldn't remember and they were like "Mm, okay you're okay yeah (laughs) can you maybe ask someone right and the autopsy reported that an instrument sharp enough to perforate the womb and cause fatal infection was used for this abortion so very seriously like completely done wrong you know and the coroner's jury determined that marianne had died of infection following an abortion committed by Dr. Cream and Hattie Mack. 
So they it implicated both of them in the end. Okay. Um, so Cream, yeah. Uh, Cream ended up sharing a cell at Cook County Jail, which is known as Murderer's Row, with a man named Earl, who was under who was also there for like botched abortion, which is a coincidence, maybe I don't know, but that's weird. We just keep them all together. Literally, oh, everyone who's done the same crime, you're in this block, <laughs> whatever. Um, Very specific crimes. Stealing yeah. chickens. Uh, so one of the most accomplished lawyers in Chicago was defending him. His name was Alfred Trude. He had defended 30 men and women accused of murder and had only been convicted of like a few. So... There were also rumors that Trude made bribes to get his defendants off of Murderer's Royal, you know? So, Mac, Hattie Mac cut a deal with the prosecution, and she was going to be a witness against Cream. So, they were mainly gunning for him. And the defense's position was that Cream was too skilled to have possibly made this operation. He was too good of a doctor to have possibly made this mistake. So it couldn't have been him. So. Well, then that just proves that it's more so him because he's intentionally or it's it's proving to me that it was intentional then. Yeah. Intentional negligence or malpractice. I don't know. Yeah. Some Exactly. Um, Latree. Treed. Trude. Um, showed the jurors his many diplomas, his years of schooling that he had in Canada and in Britain. And Cream very calmly, like, explained with diagrams and drawings the process and method of childbirth. So he was, like, charming the jury. Like, see, I know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking smart and articulate, showing you all these diagrams. Like, I know what I'm doing, obviously. That's that's what Bunch did. Yeah. This is really giving me Dr. Bunch vibes. Yep. Okay, sorry. The jury found him not guilty. And the murder charge against Hattie was also dropped. So once again, he is released. And both of um, this poor woman's murderers are let go. And I say both because like, I'm not entirely sure how much Hattie was like involved or not. It's kind of unclear. She definitely oh. knew things, but whether or not no. she did it. No, I don't think on her part, like, I think she was kind of, what's like, like a, um, I don't know the charge, but like, she knew what they were doing was illegal. Um, and she, what, like, she was there to take care of her friend after it happened. But I don't think at any point was she like a part of the procedure or yeah, anything. she kind of helped facilitate it and then was there to like watch her afterwards yeah i guess of if anything she sounds like she was like a, a cover-up and that's you know yeah like yeah like uh witness well no more 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 involved than a witness i don't know how to explain it yeah like is that like second degree murder or something accomplice or something uh, that's it that's the word That's what I'm looking for. So in March and April of 1881, 
Cream reopened his medical practice because he was completely free to do so after being, you know, accused of murder. And sure enough, a young woman named Ellen Stack, she was 25-year-old maid, she started feeling unwell. So a doctor, she said, was called Dr. Beebe, had vaccinated her against smallpox and started giving her medication. So Ellen took the medicine, and around 1 a.m. one day, she was groaning and her convulsion started. And her employer found her and summoned the doctor really quickly, but she died very quickly. Um, Sounds familiar. Yeah, just a bit. And Ellen was not seeing a doctor named Bibi. She was seeing Dr. Cream. And she knew his real name, but she didn't tell anyone that she was seeing a notorious doctor because his reputation was kind of like ruined after that trial, Mm. even though he was still free to practice. And she knew her friends and family would tell her not to go to him, but he was cheaper than the other doctors. So she just, she was lying and telling people it was a different name. So that kind of helped keep him under the radar a little bit because people didn't realize until after she was dead. What had specifically changing this doctor's name because of his bad reputation and then you end up dead mm-hmm. yeah that's like the most obvious thing i can even think of yeah not uh yeah so the autopsy found she was not poisoned her cause of death was a collapse resulting from a spasmodic colic um which I thought autopsy was not done properly because she was poisoned. Um, but it was like it hidden well, I guess. Why isn't anyone like looking into these pills that all these people have? Like, yeah, taking these pills, let's see what's in it. Yeah, like even if the bottle reads something hmm. else, maybe you can verify. I mean, our like we literally, if we have patients bring in medication that we they want us to give, um. Like we want that they want us to get them in the hospital. We have to bring it down to our pharmacy and have it verified. Like this is actually the medication. I feel like that's fairly simple process to do. Yeah. So cream was tracked down once again, but he still claimed he was only treating her for smallpox. And he even went as far to suggest, oh, you know what? I think she actually might've been poisoned, but it was this guy, Frank Pyatt, the drugstore owner. He must have, he gave her the prescriptions. So it was him, obviously. He does this so much. Yeah. It's he like points them bizarre. He points them in the wrong direction with the right information. And he's getting too involved. Like other people are like, no, 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 I'm sorry. I had nothing to do with that. He's like, I know who had something to do with it or look into this person. I mean, you have to be questioning the person that's instantly pointing fingers at someone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just true. I don't know. It's a method I've not seen before. <laughs> so probably not a very good one. Yeah. Um, Cream demanded an inquest into her death and an analysis of, analysis of the medicine that she took. But Pyatt was exonerated because there was literally nothing that could implicate him. 
Um, but he sent another letter to this man. was like, you know what? You got off, but I still think you're going to be arrested because I did an experiment and I know through this experiment that you're the killer and I can prove it. I baffling, baffling, so delusional, very delusional. He thinks and, any of this is helping him. Right. And then the fact that he's like, oh, yes, look at the pills she was taking. Like, I just like what I had literally just said. So then they are going to know that the pills are poison and then they'll look into who gave them to her. Yeah. I mean, hello, connect the dots, ABC. Yeah. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, it didn't end there like it should have. Um, one night, another woman was found in a hotel in the hallway, writhing in pain. And she said she had swallowed something and then she lost consciousness and died. And her name was Sarah Alice Montgomery. She was a waitress and police found a medicine bottle in her room with a dark liquid and a prescription for ergo, I think it's E-R-G-O-T, ergot, ergo, I don't know, but it was that is an alkaloid that doctors use to induce labor at the time. Oh. Yes. So Sarah announced uh, before she died, she had found a new job and she went to a drugstore on West Madison for a prescription of this ergo. And her autopsy showed she was three months pregnant. And the ergo that she had taken was laced with strychnine. And the druggist who had filled her prescription was accused through a letter in the mail of being a murderer. But again, he was not found responsible. So uh, Cream then became the suspected murderer once again. So, Uh hmm. And in June 1881, this letter to a man named Joseph Martin showed up and it said, I'm obliged to inform your neighbors and employers that you, your wife, and children are suffering from syphilis so that our neighbors can protect themselves. Like, you need protection against syphilis. It's not contagious. You have to, like, give I it mean, to I mean, it is contagious, but in but a... In a <laughs> not airborne, right? Yeah, right. In a specific Why way. would they need to protect themselves from it? Also, it wasn't true. Um, and this was the third letter from Dr. Cream that Martin had gotten. So by the end of the day, Cream was arrested by U.S. Marshals and charged with violating federal law to use the Postal Service to distribute indecent, lewd, and obscene messages. (laughs) Um, Just imagine, like, how embarrassing it would be then to, like, get called out on it. Like, dude, why are you sending these letters? And then him just be like, I don't know because I, I want to. Literally. <laughs> I'm bored. <laughs> okay, I'm bored. Yeah. Like, what other reason do you have? I, that's the thing. It's like, it's just such a weird, or random thing that people are just like, but, but why though? <laughs> but why? Yeah. And when he was arrested, he claimed he did not know of the law because he was from Canada and people there did stuff like this all the time and never got in trouble. Like, Wait, so LOL. I can't harass people through the mail? Like, 
I can't say really bizarre things. Hmm. But I want That's to. That's weird. I did what it all the really... time. Like, <laughs> yeah, we all do it. Us what I really, really want to. I just what we're known for. <laughs> oh you know, God. us Canadians. I always send loon mail. <laughs> Literally, that's so weird. That is the weirdest. I don't know. Thing. I don't know. It's um, so bizarre. I don't get it. Mo- so so much of this is so bizarre. Um. <clears throat> So Cream did not show up for his hearing for this charge, and an arrest warrant was issued. And Let me guess. Let me guess. He says, "I didn't know I have to go to a hearing." Yeah, pretty. <laughs> we don't do that in Canada. <laughs> I don't know the law. <laughs> uh, so, in June 1881, we're going to move to Garden Prairie, Illinois, which I'm from Illinois, and I've never heard of Garden Prairie. Have you? I don't know. Maybe it's yeah, something I don't recognize else that whatsoever. So a woman named Julia Stott had just gotten off a train from Chicago. Her husband was suffering from epilepsy and she had gotten medication from a doctor in Chicago to help him. And she had gotten a fresh batch of medicine and she gave her husband a tablespoon of liquid and three capsules. And 15 minutes later, he died. So, um, Dr. Frank Whitman received a telegram from a Dr. Cream requesting a post-mortem on Daniel Stott, um, saying he suspected foul play. But he had epilepsy, so everyone believed this guy had died from an epileptic seizure. Did I say that right? right? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... Another letter came saying, oh, you know what? It looks like he died of strychnine poisoning, but I'm not the coroner, so you should probably figure that out. Where did that letter come from? Dr. Green. (gasps) (laughs) Yeah. And, like, it's just, again, mind-boggling. So many times, this guy, everyone believes, has died from epilepsy. And you're just going to throw it out there that maybe he was poisoned. Maybe it was foul play. And it was you. Like, I just, who does that? I mean. I, it's just the weirdest tactic. Yeah. I mean, could he maybe be thinking like, well, if I put myself in this situation, then it will make sense if I get connected later. Yeah. I guess he's trying to cover his tracks by exposing it, but it's a weird play. Um, so like, Dr. get out in front of it get out in front of it before it really becomes anything yeah i can i mean maybe it makes sense but it just i mean clearly it's room you gotta see many times yeah but i don't know maybe people were just really stupid back then (laughs) (laughs) so dr whitman did perform these tests and he realized that there was strychnine in his stomach and he's like you know what I think I even, I'm going to go so far as to say I know who the murderer is right here and now because he's been sending letters. Um, you know who mentioned Strychnine on the blue? Hmm. Guy, I bet he's killed him. That is, that's logical. Makes yeah. sense. Like, ABC. what an astute observation, sir. <laughs> um, so Daniel had consulted Cream about kidney trouble. 
And every 10 days, his wife, Julia, took a train to Chicago to get her husband's medicine. And on at least one visit, she stayed overnight. And her last trip was June 11th. And she returned with the medicine right before her husband died. Um, she gave him medicine right before the husband died? Yes. Hmm. So. A suspicious. <clears throat> yeah. Julia claimed she had not spoken to Cream since Daniel died, but then she admitted she had gone to confront him about the telegrams demanding an investigation. And she was like, why are you doing this? Why are you saying these things and demanding an investigation? And he was like, oh, because I believe that you poisoned your husband. You did it. So evidence was kind of implicating Cream as the killer. I mean, it's not so sad. Like, even though no one really believed that Cream or that that she had attempted murder. Um, wouldn't that be so sad? Like, your husband just dies after you give him medication. You probably already feel really guilty. Um, and then someone says, you're trying to kill him. It's like, no. Like, excuse me? I honestly, I would just be like, I would be so adamant about like, it must have just been a epilepsy because this is something they deal with and they always know that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, so Cream skipped town to avoid his murder and postal service charges Um, because he has both going on right now. And Dr. Whitman kind of pressed Julia for details. And he was like, what's really going on? What do you know? And she said, okay, Cream made me make him power of attorney so that he could sue Buck and Rayner, who were a druggist. They were pharmacists um, for killing her husband. But she said she refused to do it. And she also admitted that they were lovers, her and Cream. So then everyone's like, okay, so you plotched, you plotched, you hatched this plot together to kill your husband. And she was like, no, I just thought we were going to sue the druggist for making him sick. So she's a bit guilty, though. You know? Yeah, that seems pretty guilty. Yeah. So... Cream skipped town and he goes back to Canada and he ends up in Bell River, Ontario in 1881 and stays at the Gothier Hotel, but it doesn't last very long. The police find him right away. They knock on his door with an arrest warrant and accuse him of murdering Daniel Stott. And he's like, no, absolutely not. I am innocent man. I never do anything wrong. And they were like, okay, why'd you leave town if you're so innocent? And he was like, oh, I just had trouble. I just wanted a new place. And they're like, mm, that's not good enough. So they take him back to Illinois to face trial. And he pleads with his very rich father. He was like, my father is going to get me the best lawyer in Illinois again. And I'm going to win this. But his father was like, haha, I am done sending money to you. Absolutely not. His father did not pay for a lawyer and refused to fund his defense. And so he was kind of screwed. Good. 
I'm glad. I mean, you can't just be counting on your daddy to bail you out all the time. Maybe mm-hmm. stop committing crimes. How about that? It's, it's like, you know what? On your second murder charge, I'm going to say no. You know, to say for him to just say no just proves that he's that the father even thinks he's guilty. Yeah. If he's just like, no, I'm not going to fund it. Like, I don't know a single father that wouldn't put down all their money. Well, I mean, okay, there are people like that. But like a lot of fathers out there, especially wealthy ones that can't afford it, uh-huh. everything they can, if they truly believe that their son is being or their daughter being falsely accused of something, they would do everything they can to help. Yeah. So the fact that he's just like, no, I'm not going to help you this time. Sorry, bud. Yep. Pretty like, that much. Tells you that he like, thinks he's, hmm, he's even his family. Yeah. So his second trial for murder in less than a year opened on September 19th in Belvedere, Illinois. And Julia Stott was the key witness. She repeated her story of what had happened, admitted to jurors they had been lovers. And then she also admitted she had brought her 10-year-old daughter Revel with her on several occasions to meet Cream. And Revel had to testify that Cream had spoken to her and said, I love your mother and I want her for my own and I'm going to make it happen. So, Grody. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That poor child. Yeah. Like, what? as a 10-year-old, what do you do with that information? You know, like, I'd, you'd be afraid, but also I feel like she probably wanted to tell her dad, but, like, I don't know. So, like, all you want is, like, as a 10-year-old, is your parent to be, like, a happy family and her parents to be together and loving each other and it to, like, no, no child wants to hear it. I want your mother and I'm going to do everything I can to have her. Yeah. No one wants to hear that. Absolutely not. So Cream kind of tried to save himself by speaking on the stand. And he was very, he denied everything, accused Julia of working alone. But then his telegrams, all these letters that he has been writing were produced and showed to the jury. And it was unanimously decided he was guilty. So he received life in prison with one day of each year to spend in solitary confinement, which is interesting. (laughs) What? Wait, so does that mean that it's going to be like, yeah, so that's so weird to me. So he just has to take one one day to go. One day a year. Yeah. So. Julia received six months in prison in Illinois, um, but then she was released after that. And Cream was sent to Illinois Penitentiary in Joliet on November 1st, 1881. And during his time there, he spent begging his father to help him, claiming he was still innocent. And finally, his father was like, you know what, I really don't believe you're innocent, but if you are, all right, I'll invest a little time to find out if you are. So he, his father asked the governor for a pardon, but it was rejected. And after that, William Cream was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done with you. He removed his son from his will and demanded that when he died, none of his money or property would go to Thomas, his, wow. his firstborn son. Yeah, his wow. old. Well, good for him, you know, like, yeah. 
and like because that is not how he raised him i don't understand what is unhinged in this dude's brain usually you know you can kind of see some kind of mental illness behind it or some kind of childhood trauma but this guy is literally just a psychopath yeah literally i i don't know it, it must really hurt to like see your child turn out like that when you tried so hard and raised them as good as you possibly can and you think that they're normal growing up like I don't know that would be shocking right like he literally um was in he taught Sunday school classes mm-hmm. I I don't know I just I feel so bad for the family to like for what they probably were feeling and like thinking through all this like that's not how you raised him like I don't know this dude and what are you supposed to do yeah exactly there's nothing you can do as a parent which is scary I'm sure but yeah right um so even though his father was not willing to help others surprisingly were he had a lot of friends I guess and one man Charles Fuller wrote to Boone County that you know what I think cream has been punished enough for his eight years in prison that he's served so far I think he's a new man so it was up to the new governor uh Joseph Pfeiffer to make the decision and a petition was going around and a lot of important people had signed it um to get cream released and Pfeiffer was like, you know what? Okay, but you have to leave Illinois once you're released. And his brother, Daniel, was like, oh, I assure you, he will. He'll go to England. Um, and so Cream was released on July 31st. And his brother, Daniel, later admitted it took 1,000 pounds, which is $28,000 now, to get his brother out of prison, but he never said who he had to pay to get his brother out. So somebody's crooked somewhere, I'm assuming. Um, and so that is when he was released and he went to Quebec and then to London. And Inspector Jarvis learns all of this and realizes Cream was released from Joliet two months before the Lambeth poisoning started in London. So, hmm, all of that lines up. And that is nuts. How did that just like, just so sad that it was all because of corruption. Yeah, pretty much. So Jarvis also found two possible attempted murders Um, Jarvis suspected Louisa Mary Reed, who was Cream's sister-in-law's mother, was possibly murdered by him after she she suddenly died from a brain hemorrhage. There was no evidence of foul play, but it was so they couldn't do anything further about her or investigate further. But the inspectors strongly believed he might have had something to do with causing that. And in Montreal, there was a woman named Emily Turner who had worked at London's Royal Aquarium. And she said she met a man with peculiar eyes who had given her pills that burned her tongue and made her feel very ill. 
but she later was all right and she lived but also it was suspected that it was him especially because of the peculiar eyes comment right um and so why are all these women just so okay with taking these pills from men literally understand it was a different time but still it's just like what kind of medication are you putting in your body yeah this one random dude comes up to you and he looks weird too wears capes has wonky eyes yeah and is literally like take this pill like (laughs) i don't i understand i understand it's not just like that i understand that he probably tells them like oh it'll do this or however he gets them to take it but still like yeah have some sort of self-preservation come on mm-hmm. i'll be like mm, no right uh kids don't take pills from peculiar any kind of man peculiar yeah. why can't i say that word peculiar pick Pe- wait don't don't tell me don't tell me peculiar why am i saying it like that <laughs> peculiar peculiar okay now it's just getting worse you you're putting too many syllables in there. <laughs> you you say it. Peculiar. Peculiar. Oh my god! I didn't know I can't say that word. Peculiar. Okay, is that right? Uh, it's <laughs> close. <laughs> so, Inspector Jarvis returned to London, believing I have everything I need to take cream down in court once and for all. So, his trial in London started October 17, 1892, and he faced seven indictments. Murder, murder for Matilda Clover, Ellen Donworth, Alice Marsh, Emma Chevelle, and the attempted murder of Louisa Harvey and two blackmail accounts. Counts. But for now, they were aiming to just charge him with Matilda Clover's murder because that one had the most evidence. The trial for the defense went well at first. Um, They questioned the fairness of the police and said that Dr. Stevenson did not really know what he was doing. Because again, there was that doubt in forensics and they really played that up. And Dr. Stevenson took the stand and the defense kind of tore him apart, made people question the doctor's validity got tricked the doctor into admitting poison is tricky and can have many random side effects and got him to admit like, oh, don't you think a disease of the spine could have caused her spasms and not this poison? He was like, well, it could, but I don't think it did. But people, you know, he, it planted doubt for the jury. And Understandable. I mean, when you, when you start <clears throat> speaking on like saying, well, I mean, I guess it's a possibility. I guess that's a possibility. Yeah. That makes total sense that people would be like, well, how can I surely accuse this person of being guilty if there's all these other possibilities out there? Exactly. And then Dr. otherwise it's just circumstantial, right? Yes, it could be. And then Dr. Stevenson also said, well, I did the tests. I gave these medicines to a frog and it died. And I also tested it in his lab and he was trying to explain the tests of how like you put the substance in a vial and it'll turn a certain color if there's poison detected. And, but it all sounded like, you know, gibberish to an 
to a jury who doesn't understand forensics and it's such a new thing. And so the defense was like, so you're going to send a man to his death for silly science, boiling down to one dead frog, a few colors in one doctor's opinion. And, you know, when you put it that way, like it sounds, you know, the defense did their job. It sounds ridiculous, even though, you know, those tests are legit and like actual science, but yeah. Um, but then the prosecution got their turn and they were very eager to bring up his many, many crimes in Canada and Illinois. Um, but the defense argued you're only on trial for Matilda Clover's defense murder. So you cannot bring up any of the other cases, but the judge ruled that the other cases were similar fact evidence, which meant it was fair game to use them and talk about them in the trial. So that's good. That's, that's interesting because that's not very typical, I didn't think. No, not really. But they were like, since these cases are so similar in manner and MO and everything, we'll allow it. Louisa Harvey testified again about his attempted murder on her. Um, the deaths of Ellen, Alice, and Emma were described to the jury in depth. And Laura, his ex-fiance, also identified the blackmail letters. Um, and the defense really wilted and like fell apart with all, all of this evidence. Um, Detector, or Inspector Jarvis testified with everything he had found out in Illinois wow. and in Canada. Um, so really, he had no chance at this point. And he was found guilty of murder. Good. The judge said in his conviction he had committed a most terrible crime, a murder so diabolical in its character, fraught with so much cold-blooded cruelty that one hardly trusts oneself to speak of the details. He was scheduled to hang on November 8th, but his lawyers finally decided to push for an insanity plea. Um, and they got the execution delayed by one week. And he was put on suicide watch. But one person said, he is utterly reckless of other people's lives, but he is particularly careful of his own neck. So there's no way he's going to kill himself, which is huh. interesting. Yeah. Um, he also tried to write Laura, his ex-fiance, saying, you have to recant your testimony and threatened to kill her if she did not. So yeah, <laughs> that's really helpful. <laughs> so, oh. Hmm. Um, well, better tell him I'm innocent or else I'm going to kill you. Yeah, literally. <laughs> so his insanity plea was no use. Nobody believed he was insane. So on November 15th, 1892, he woke up around 7 a.m., ate eggs, bread, and tea. That was his last meal. Um, and put on a black coat and brown trousers. And he began to wrap a shirt collar around his neck. But a guard said, I wouldn't put that on this morning if I were you. So he tossed it aside. Um, oh, wait, wrapped a what around his neck? A shirt collar, it said. Like I a, wonder what that is. I don't know. Like a tie. Oh, something. Oops. Yeah, <laughs> the guard was like, "Yeah, you don't need to put that on." <laughs> I wouldn't do that if I were you. That's such a 
like yeah you're right you're right yeah he's like "Mm, I guess um the prison chaplain arrived at 8 a.m and they prayed for 45 minutes and James Billington who was the London executioner then secured Cream's arms behind his back with leather straps and Cream said (laughs) to all the guards and the executioner he said you all have made the last two days amongst the happiest of my life. And thank you for your service. Sarcasm? Or what? No, it wasn't sarcastic either. Like, this is what he said. That was his, like, last <laughs> word. Okay, guy. All right. <laughs> They're like, haha, okay. Pull the lever. <laughs> like, thing to say, dude. Yeah. So he was escorted outside, and it was pouring rain. So he was going to be executed in like this shed. So not publicly, like on a scaffold or anything, but he had to like walk past the public to get to like the executioner's shed where it was all like the trap door and everything was set up in there. Um, and even though it was pouring rain, it was a very gloomy day. The mood was very festive. A carnival was set up in central London. Tons of people were there having the time of their life, really excited. And one man, when he was asked, like, why are you hanging out in the rain? He said, well, it's better hanging out about out here than hanging up inside and there, which shed. So what a response, my guy. <laughs> I know, right? Dang. <laughs> so I guess you're like, you're right. So Cream reached the shed with his guards right before 9 a.m. And when the bell told nine, they pulled the lever and Cream's body fell five feet before snapping his neck. And they checked if he was dead. He was. And a black flag was raised above the prison. And the crowd cheered and laughed. And the body was left hanging for an hour just to ensure he was really, really dead. Like, surely he can't be alive after an hour. Um, oh, man. Yep. And... After this, Detective Tonbridge, and for all of his work and all of his investigation, received five pounds and was promoted to chief inspector. Three years later, he went to New Zealand to command the National Police until 1903, and he retired and returned to England. Uh, a couple of the doctors who examined the women stood trial for negligence for failing to properly identify cause of death and for making false death certificates. So they were all convicted and forced to pay hefty fees for that charge of negligence, which it kind of did surprise me that they actually went through and went back and like charged these doctors with that. I'm so glad that they did because it was getting me so mad just how many things were missed just because of assumptions made based on their lifestyle that's so wrong yeah that's not that's not your job as the doctor your job is to look at the science and mm-hmm. like you literally it would have been better if they didn't know anything about these people like I understand it's it's important to know the per- the person's history but yeah. almost do the autopsy and then learn the history so that you can make two different um like observations yeah it's also yeah, oh, yeah and like 
that's really that's really awesome for what who was the um main investigator um his last name is tunbridge forgot his first name Tunbridge. well it's really good of him like that's he yeah. really did a good job and he was dedicated i mean he traveled all over the united states did all that investigating mm-hmm. yeah. yeah he deserves him and detective jarvis okay they, they were the two who did all of that investigating like really dedicated yeah yeah it's um, so weird how people react around like death like specifically um when someone is put to death people yeah. are so strange i mean a car a whole carnival being set up and everything like yeah it's so bizarre like imagine that happening today like right i mean in the 80s that like kind of like people were like pouring through the streets and celebrating when like ramirez richard ramirez was executed yeah but it wasn't like a whole carnival or anything but like i mean i guess it still happens if you're famous enough killer but yeah in a way i don't know it is weird like people people are weird things yeah right about that yeah I don't know. Yeah. So where'd you get all this information from? So it is from a book by Dean. Oh, it's literally right in front of me. Here it is. Dean Job. It's called The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Hunt for a Victorian Serial Killer. And I was just browsing Barnes and Noble and I always go to the true crime section and see what looks interesting and it looked really good. So I'm glad I picked it up it's a very very good book and as always there's a lot more in it than I can fit in the podcast so if you want Mm -hmm. extra details I really recommend it it's really good yeah so um yeah thanks for looking up all the information it was funny Emily sent me a message and said um okay I'm reading this book it's gonna take me a while it's a pretty big book so (laughs) I'm gonna do this case at some point but not for a while and then she like messages me the next day and she's like, yeah, so I'm almost done with the book. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't stop reading it. I literally, yeah, I literally so. finished it in like two days. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a real page turner. Yeah, finished it and like took notes and everything. So you were really <laughs> just grinding. I was into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, so I think that we're going to make this into kind of a, uh, what is it called? Like like a mini series yeah a series that's what i'm looking for yeah we're gonna make this into a series <clears throat> so a lot of it is gonna we're gonna kind of look into uh doctors and um i'm also gonna do a case on um oh. someone yeah um i'm gonna do that munchausen's case at some point so we're gonna be kind of focusing on i don't know the medical side of things a little bit yeah um our next I don't know if this is gonna, do you want to do it the next one be Dr. Bunch yeah okay we'll so that. the next one's Dr. Bunch so we recommend beforehand to either listen to the podcast or watch the um is it on Netflix or Peacock I think it's on Peacock on Peacock mm-hmm. um the Peacock series it's Dr. Death both the podcast and the Peacock series. So the Peacock series is actually based on the podcast. It's told in the same way. Um, it's just got, you know, the actors. It's 
both are super interesting. Honestly, I watched, I listened to and watched both and I was captivated the whole time. It's, it's a horrible, people are really abused by this guy. Yeah. And he was really messed up in the head. And I'm just really, uh, I'm, I'm really interested to hear, hear it again, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I've, and I've not seen the show yet, actually. I've only well, listened to the podcast. Oh, it's yeah. messed up. Yeah, you got to watch the show too. Um, yeah, so we are a little excited about our little doctors. Yeah, I, yeah. I know I am. I mean, obviously, you guys all know I'm a nurse. So I really like to hear like the medical side of things and, you know, the d- diagnoses. So I'm really excited about this. I'm, I mean, I hate saying the word excited. I know it's not, it sounds not good. Like, yeah, we're, we're, we're interested in talking about the case, (laughs) right? It's like, like, you know, it's, it's hard to find the words, you know, but I feel like every, every person that looks in, like watches true crime and looks into it. Yeah. I mean, you're listening to this podcast, you know, this is a true crime podcast. So you obviously have this same opinion of as us it's messed up but we want to hear more we want to hear all the details yes so uh, yeah that's where we're at right now and I'm sure all (laughs) of you guys can agree and no one can really explain it yeah you really can't explain why you're drawn to this stuff because without making yourself sound like a weirdo but like I know I don't know but it is funny because more often than not, I'm like, oh, I, I have a true crime podcast or I listen to true crime. And people are like, oh, my gosh, I love it. I'm, I know. I'm people tell me that all the time, too, when I tell them. Yeah. So. Crazy. And, yeah, I have, a, like, a, several coworkers that all listen to it. It's fun. It's crazy. Well, anyway, yeah. and it's not fun. I don't know. Fun is the word. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You all know what I mean. We all know. Right. We're all like-minded here. Exactly. I assume. <laughs> yes. I, yes, I assume. All right. Well, all right. on that note, I'm Casey. Hi, I'm Emily. And you just heard a sprinkle of sugar, a dash of murder. <laughs>